second time, Dad. Absolutely. Two girls, man. It's going to be a wild ride. Let's go. Girls are where it's at. I am the princess songs that I know now. Powerful. Powerful. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't want to show off. I don't want to show off. Um, it is good to be back. Uh, it's, been, it's been a minute for Nicole and I as we've been celebrating babies and Grammys, and uh, it's just been a wild ride for us. But uh, I cannot tell you how much I've missed this. My wife can attest. Um, I love what I do. And so I told her I was going to only focus on being off and spending time with the family. But about a week in, I started getting itchy. And... Uh, and uh, just ready for this morning. If you're brand new to Northlands, again, a welcome to you. We've been in a series now uh, for the last couple of weeks called Better Together. Uh, we're talking about community. If, you, if you're familiar with Northlands, you know that every January and every February, uh, we focus on two key values here uh, at Northlands. We focus on service, and you'll recall our sermon series last, Jan- or last month, uh, A Servant's Towel. We've just been focusing on a posture of serving one another, serving the church, serving our community. And then every February, we talk about community, this value of community. And so if I can just let you into my world, because now I've done several years of this rotation again and again, uh, I'm a guy who likes to iron his clothes the night before, so I'm ready for the day. Um, So I knew I was gonna be preaching today, and I'm just gonna be honest, I had kind of a canned message ready to go several weeks uh, in advance, and I was just like, it's gonna be a good message, it's fine, I'm gonna inspire people to join uh, journey groups. And then it took a turn. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I, I was listening uh, via the stream at home in week one, uh, and Greg said something, a phrase, uh, that I don't know how to explain other than it, ju- it literally grabbed hold of me and it wouldn't let go. Um, it wasn't just that, oh, that was interesting what he said on the Sunday. It followed me into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday until I just had to wrestle it down with the Lord and figure out what it meant. He began to talk about this phrase that, that came up through um, health organizations like the CDC and other health organizations that studied this term death by despair. I don't know if you were in week one if you remember him saying that, but essentially it's this idea that they're seeing an incredible amount of uh, the suicide rates are going up, uh, abuse of drug and overdoses, abuse of other substances, and it's all boiled down to uh, relational and social uh, separation, isolation, and it's causing people early deaths and, and a, a, what they're calling a death by despair. And uh, something about that just grabbed me. Um, uh, the best that I can describe it is it, it felt like the Holy Spirit kind of grabbed me by the shirt and was just speaking to the leaders in our nation, especially in the church, going, Tyler, don't let people die here. It felt militant to me. It felt like there was something. He's like, this is, don't let people die here. And so as I sat with that, uh, the Lord began to speak to me and I, this kind of prophetic picture began to form up and I didn't intend for it to be such a, a major piece of today's message, but as it grew and grew and grew, it became this, uh, kind of four-page word that I sat with Greg uh, this week, and I sat with him and shared it with him, and then I shared it with Tom and Armando and some of the other elders that were on hand and talked it through with my wife, and I just said, I feel like uh, this is different for me because I've given prophetic words before, but this feels directed towards the nation. It feels directed towards the Big C Church Global, and it, and it feels like it's setting up our morning today as kind of the, the backdrop of where I want to go as we talk about better together. And so um, where, where I want to start is I'm going to read this word, and I'll, I'll start by just setting up and talking briefly about anticipatory leadership. Um, there's this phrase that gets thrown around in businesses and organizations called anticipatory leadership, and it's where visionary leaders, they, they see opportunities or problems or circumstances or the times changing before they actually change. Everybody's going about their day, but then the leaders start going, hey, something new is on the horizon, and we need to change right now. We need to make a shift right now, not when things change, but before they change, we need to be ready in preparation. A great example of, of a failure of anticipatory leadership is Blockbuster. Oh, I just lost all the Gen Z. And they're, Blockbuster was this novel thing. Back in our day, uh, we, Blockbuster was the premier rental video store, and it was climbing on the rise. And one day, as it's climbing and up into the right, this little old thing called Netflix was just getting started. And the story actually goes that Netflix approached Blockbuster and wanted to partner with them. They said, hey, we believe something new is coming, and we actually want to work with Blockbuster uh, to bring it about. And Blockbuster essentially said, no, we're good. We're happy with the way things are going. Things are up and to the right. Why would we change now? 
And because they didn't change, when Netflix took over, they began to drop significantly. And by that time, as they were sinking, it was too late to right the ship. And so anticipatory leadership says, we don't change when things are bad, we change when things are good or the momentum's carried like it's always been because something's changing in the air. And I believe right now we have an advantage, not because we're like great CEOs or executives, but because we serve Jehovah Jireh, the one who goes ahead of us and sees. And so as I, as I share this word, what it feels like in my guts is it feels like the Lord just took me up to a 30,000 foot view and showed me a landscape that's not yet here, but will be here. I'm asking, I'm, as humbly as I can, I've been here for a while now, I'm asking you, if you trust me in any way as a spiritual leader, my gut's telling me this is where things are going. I'm asking for you to trust me. If we don't know each other, I totally understand. Give me grace, stay here a while and gain trust. I'm not asking you just to dive right in, but this is where I feel like our nation is going and in light of where it's going, we need to prepare accordingly, okay? So here, here's the word. I, I saw a picture of two faucets one was labeled power and the other was labeled pressure. Both faucets were turned on and they started with a sputter. The sputtering of water was a taste for us of what is to come in greater measure from both of these faucets. The sputtering of water that came from the faucet of pressure was like the pressure we all felt during the pandemic years. That was just a taste of what comes from the faucet of pressure. That those feelings of fear and frustration, anger, turmoil, hardship, pain, difficulty, those are like a few drops that were a momentary season and a taste of what comes from this faucet. The sputtering of water that came from the faucet of power is what we have tasted in our own community here at Northlands and in many of our personal encounters. And also what we are seeing in our nation in places like Asbury and Charlotte, and I'm hearing word about several other universities and some stuff happening in Denver, there's a sporadic thing of the move of God happening. These are no small things, but only the first taste of what is to come from this faucet. After the sputtering, the faucets began to both flow at full force. These faucets pouring out their water simultaneously represent not a new season that is temporary or lasting for a moment, these faucets are setting a new baseline, a new normal in both of these categories of power and pressure. There will be a new baseline of power we will experience as the Spirit pours himself out on our nation and we will see an overwhelming, undeniable demonstration in the world through the church of his power. We will see undeniable healings, crystal clear, unambiguous prophetic visions and dreams, creative miracles, signs, and wonders. Right next to it comes a new baseline of pressure, like we have never seen or had to deal with in this country's history ever. There will be a shaking out of false prophets and of false converts because the days of any worldly advantage of being a Christian in this country are now over. There will be no advantages like fame, wealth, status, notoriety, followers, influences of powerful people, building a platform as a Christian. That's done. The advantages in the, in the U.S. historically, if I could say it this way, in my grandfather's generation, it was assumed if you were a good, honest, moral man, full of integrity, that the sign was that you attended church. Whether any of that was true or not, so people did business with you because they saw you attending with your family in public and assumed you must be a good person and they gave you their business. Back then there was an advantage of being a Christian. In my father's generation, people began to believe it was optional to attend church and you could still be a good person worth doing business with. So whether you were a Christian or not, the world viewed it as a neutral, let it be. Essentially, you could float around in a lukewarm kind of environment. It didn't really matter if you went to church or not, but nobody, nobody had a problem with you going. In my generation, it was an odd and perplexing thing for the world. As people got to know you and see you, they're like, you're kind of normal. You're successful, you're intelligent. Why on earth would you waste your time going to something, talking about spirituality, these fairy tales? But in this next generation, you will be hated for associating with Jesus and the church. To call yourself a Christian is to accept the call of putting a large target on your back. There will be no more advantages from the world. 
This is why false prophets and converts will um, fall away and cause others to fall away because people will walk away as they take their faith and they're faced with this kind of pressure. There'll be no advantage and therefore they'll say, I don't wanna stay here anymore. It's too hard. Since I was in high school, people have said America is becoming a post-Christian nation. I, I feel like in my heart and in my gut, the, anticipa uh, the anticipating of what is to come that day is now here. And it is, not, it is now the new baseline. There is no going back. We will be a post-Christian nation. It's not a seasonal reality. It will be the new landscape. You and I will have to learn to practice and preach our faith in a hostile environment. Now, with that said, I felt like the Lord just, Tyler, emphasized this. Make sure that there's hope throughout this. This is not God's judgment on our nation. This is not God's judgment on our nation because the spirit of God is gonna be poured out in this nation like we have never seen before. Just because there is pressure, it does not mean that he is far from us. He's rejected us, turned his face from us. On the contrary, in our darkest seasons, he will be very near. Pressure is not a sign of God's judgment. It is a sign that he is empowering and mobilizing his church. Something's getting ready to happen that's big. I know that this to be true confidently because our very faith, consider this, our very faith and the early church was born in intense persecution by Rome. Christians were fed to lions and tortured for entertainment. They were mocked. They were viewed as foolish, hoisted up on posts, lit on fire as lamps for dark streets. And this was a sign for people who walked by them. This is what happens to Christians. To be a Christian then was to accept a life that would only be lived with a continual stream of pressure. And yet these same people, these same people became our heroes in the faith and they saw an outpouring of God's spirit and power like no one has ever seen before or has seen since. And it was this pressure that was the very thing that was a catalyst for the gospel to spread like we see in Acts chapter eight. You do not get the outpouring of power without an outpouring of pressure. For this reason, pressure, it increases passion. Passion for prayer, passion for worship, it creates a hunger. Very similar to what Russell's talking about, what we're seeing in Asbury. Pressure creates passion. The word passion, it means to suffer for. What are you willing to suffer for? I am willing to suffer and pay a great cost so that I might see the spirit of God poured out on all flesh like we have never seen in this nation. When you hear someone you know decently well has a terminal illness, you pray. Oh, Uncle Harold's friend, he's been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, that's so bad. I'm gonna pray for that. When your child is diagnosed with a terminal illness. You go to war. That's the power of pressure. Pressure aggravates. It forces and forges endurance, strength, and zeal. This pressure will provoke passion, which will lead to a calling out for power and chasing it down at all cost. Uh, these next, please just hear this with a grain of salt and... and there's still absolutely hope, but we need to wrap our head around this. Comfortable Christianity and the perks of religious freedoms have kept us safe from pressure in this country. We have not had to face the pressure that many of our brothers and sisters across the world have had to face, like in the underground church in China or in India, what we're seeing in Ukraine and in Russia. We have not had to, to face that because we've had the luxury of religious freedoms here in the United States. But that comfort has been like a rag stuffed up into the faucet of power, preventing that water from flowing and for us to only taste its water in small measure. But the Lord is clearing out the pipes and his spirit will not be pacified a moment longer. I believe this in my guts. The word of the Lord, do not mourn the loss of your religious freedoms. Because standing for your faith and protesting the government and culture to keep your Christian rights are not the same thing. The very, one of the very first martyrs recorded in scripture, Stephen, was not protesting the government to have the right to speak. He was told, if you keep preaching this message, we will kill you. And he said, I will not stop. And they killed him for it. That's standing for your faith. There was no such thing as a religious freedom back then. 
I feel like the Lord's bringing us back to the state of the early church to help us see this power unfold. The Spirit does not need the government's permission or the government's benefits in order for his church to thrive. The Spirit does not need the government's permission or the government's benefits in order to make his church thrive. He didn't need it from Rome, and he certainly doesn't need it from America. In light of what is to come, here's what I believe the instruction to the church is. Number one, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Because when the enemy comes in like a flood of pressure, the spirit of God raises up a far greater measure of power against it. And you will have full access to this power. You must learn now how to be a Christian in a hostile land. As first Peter says, you and I are aliens and foreigners in this land. This is not our home and they will not treat us like it is any longer. Now, the key to living as a Christian in this new environment, what I believe we should be anticipating for, here is the key. Here's what I think we should be pushing towards right now. It's where I want us to go in the rest of our time today. The key is intimacy. Intimacy with the Spirit of God and intimacy with God's people. This is what you need in order to make it in this new landscape. Intimacy with God is what is going to help you receive his power. And intimacy with God's people in community, rich, strong community, is the very thing that will hold you fast in pressure. If you do not have community, I am here today to urge you, build community now. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. I I felt this, again, as that grabbing on my shirt collar, don't let people die here. Do something about it. Don't let people die here. I felt the, I felt the Lord just, the phrase that came to mind was, and, and many will fall away. And the people who will fall away are those who reject the spirit of God. I believe that this pressure that's coming will be the very thing that will catalyze and get people moving towards salvation. And the other group of people who are gonna really have trouble in the, in the, the state that's coming is people who choose again and again isolation. We cannot choose isolation. Because if you, if you choose isolation, I promise you, you are not gonna make it. I don't mean that in a dark way, I mean that in a truthful way. And this phrase comes from Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Chapter 24, verses one to 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I believe this in my guts once again, just as Jesus pointed out, do you see that old way of living? Not a single one of those stones is gonna be left. What you've known about how to operate as a Christian in this country, that's gone. That's hard to hear. I believe something better is at hand. The kingdom of God is advancing but we have to get used to the reality that we're not gonna be the favorite golden child in our nation. That day's done. Not a single stone left unturned of that way of living. And then he begins to talk about signs of the end of the age. Listen to what Jesus says. I feel like it's almost haunting as it describes the state of our nation in many ways. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And this is what, so this phrase for me is, is stuck out. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to get engaged in our government and to fight for legislation. I'm not saying that that's wrong at all. I just think we're spending our energy in the wrong place. I think the Lord is saying, don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And I believe that these two faucets are the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations, not some nations, all, which means this nation, all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I don't know about you, but I, all I see is lawlessness continuing to ramp up more and more and more and more. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The ones who endure to the end that will be saved, I believe, are those who understand this thing of intimacy. God absolutely still has a heart for our nation. God has a heart for every nation. Not just this one. And just because the state of a government, a man-made government, is not going the way of the church does not mean that God has abandoned his church. He never will. He won't abandon his kingdom and he won't abandon his church. So find intimacy in the church. Find intimacy with the spirit of God. I think for too long we've been operating this idea that I've been fighting for intimacy. And what I mean by that is I go on YouTube and I listen to different prophets, different preachers, different voices. I'm not against any of that. I think it's great learning. But that is, somebody, that is you listening to somebody else's intimate relationship with the Lord. We need less people on YouTube, more people in the throne room of God hearing from his voice directly. And so there's a call for intimacy. I think in the next few months as a church, I know in the next few months of the church, March, April, we're gonna talk about intimacy with the spirit. Today, I wanna talk about intimacy with community. Are you guys still with me? Thank you for being uh, gracious to me as I read that. Thanks, Robbie. (laughs) As we're talking about intimacy and friendship, if you don't have a Robbie Shackelford, Some of you will make it as long as you have Robbie by your side. (laughs) Hannah's safe. In light of that, I want us to anticipate. I think this is where, this is my gut as a leader. I go, I think this is where the the Lord is calling us. That's something in my gut believes that. I could be wrong. I don't think I am though. So I'm gonna be a leader here and lead assuming that that is the future that is to come. And so in light of that, we have to talk about intimate community with one another, covenant community, not casual community. We live in a day and age where it's so easy to have thousands upon thousands of followers and nobody know you. That's not the kind of community I'm talking about. I'm talking about rich community. So I, I wanted to start by... Because we have these things like community and followers and all, I want to go here. Let's define what intimacy and community looks like. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 18, if if you don't have a Bible, it's not a problem. We'll have it up on the screen as well. Uh, Just to give context, uh, most people are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, David fighting this giant and killing Goliath. Chapter 18 is really like right after that happening. David gets kind of hit into this stratosphere of fame and infamy because he killed this champion Philistine Goliath and Saul, who was the first uh, king and leader for Israel, uh, he's now welcoming David into his house because that's what you do when somebody kills like a nine foot dude, you go, hey, come to my house, like protect my home. Here's the alarm security situation. So he's welcoming David in. Now, uh, Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. So just like we would have today if we have kings, there's a legacy that gets passed on. If you're the firstborn son in that time, you are the next in line for the throne. So Jonathan knows this. He knows he's the next in line. Now, David comes on the scene, and if you're Jonathan, the biggest threat that you could experience would be David because David's a champion. People love him. Men are beginning to follow him as a leader. Saul promotes him as a general over the army, and so people start flocking to David. But something different happens for Jonathan. He doesn't feel threatened. Instead, I want to read what happens in the heart of Jonathan. It says this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, meaning David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, meaning David. But then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And listen to Jonathan's response. And Jonathan stripped himself of his princely robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul let him over the men of war. He became a general and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Jonathan is not only threatened, not threatened by David, but he promotes him and reps him in such a way that sets David up for success. 
If, if you are Jonathan, the last thing that you wanna do is make David look good because he's threatening your seat of the throne. So the last thing you would do is give him a princely robe so that people think, oh, he must be royalty. The last thing that you would do is set him up for success and give him some of the best armor and weaponry so that he just keeps succeeding, succeeding, succeeding. But Jonathan is knit together with David in such a way that he goes, I want this man to succeed. His successes are my successes. We see throughout the relationship as a group, Jonathan clearly become, it becomes apparent, David's the next king, not me. My question to you is, do you have a Jonathan in your life? Do you have somebody in your life who will continually celebrate you and rep you, even if it means they must decrease so you can increase? Do you, do you have someone who serves you all out, who rallies people around your causes? If you're doing an initiative, if you're doing something, they go, man, we gotta get a, to be a part of this. I love, I love how it says that, that the people, when they heard David became a general, they were glad about it. Titles and leadership titles, being a boss, becoming a boss, doesn't mean people like you or gonna follow you. Something in them was already prepped and ready. The ground of their heart was ready to receive David. And I believe Jonathan was behind the scenes repping him, publicly giving him esteem and saying, man, what David's about, man, we gotta get on the same page with David. Do you have a friend like that? Uh, Greg asks this question all the time about if, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it around, what would, you, what would you wish for? He'll ask, he's like, if you could do it your way, what would you do? If you could have, my question to you, if you could have a friend like that or friends like that, would you wave that magic wand? How many people desire a Jonathan in their life? Very few people that I know would say, no, thanks. Most people would go, no, I need somebody like that in my life. I wanna be known by somebody like that in my life. The question that I have is why is it that everybody desires to have a friendship like that and yet so few people ha actually have that? You say, where do you get that? Talk? Because we have this thing that's floating around called the death by despair. I don't understand the deficiency. Why is it that there's such a great desire to have this kind of covenant community and yet, and yet so few to have that is such a rare thing? So today what I wanna do is I wanna talk about how do we get that kind of community? And if you have that kind of community, if you say, I do have Jonathan's in my life, I wanna talk about how you ought to steward that in light of what is to come, what we've been talking about so far. How do we steward that well? Uh, when I was seven, eight years old, I was walking with my dad, my uh, younger sister, and my younger brother, and we were going to a vacation Bible school at a little Methodist church about two or three blocks away from our house. And my dad was walking us there to check us in. And across the street from this Methodist church, that's actually where my grandparents lived, right down the street. So we'd be there often throughout the week. Uh, I was eight or seven, Corey, my youngest brother, uh, our younger brother, he was, I mean, probably five, six years old at that time. So old enough just to walk by my dad as we're going, up the, uh, going down the sidewalk. And I was kind of a few paces back and I can still kind of visually see it in my head as it played out. But Corey, as we're walking, sees my grandmother's house across the street and just bolts into the road. Uh, how, how many parents know this? When you're in the safety of your own house and the kids are acting up and people are running around and screaming, you'll say no casually because you're in a casual environment. Hey guys, stop rough housing, you know, stop running around. And if they stop within 30 seconds of you saying no, you're like, that's an obedient child. <laughs> How many people know though, when you just change the environment and you're now dealing with a child in the street and a van begins to come, that your nose shifts from a casual to like a Batman. No. <laughs> <laughs> I heard my dad, I can't do a bat. It's like more of a Sylvester Stallone about it. Don't do that, Corey. I'm gonna save the city. Uh, there's a no that comes when the environment shifts and changes. And I hear my dad, I watch it unplay. He goes, Corey, no. And immediately Corey freezes up in the middle of the road, unhelpful. <laughs> Which is a hallmark of Corey's life. I'm kidding, bro, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> You're so helpful. So you're gonna be watching this. As, as he freezes, a van it stops, it's, it's trying to stop and it skids probably 10 to eight feet and my dad, rushes one, two, three steps, grabs Corey by the arm and just yanks him towards the sidewalk. And if the van hadn't already hit the brakes and my dad hadn't responded, there's no way Corey would not have been at the very least clipped and hit severely. So I'm grateful for the van driver, wherever you are out there. 
and I'm grateful for my dad. Now I say all that to say, I, I sat with Nicole with this prophetic word and, and where I want us to go. And there's something in me that's grabbing me with an urgency and saying, Tyler, don't let people die here. And so when I say the next few things that we're going into, if you feel like, this is like, this is Tyler's nightmare. I never want to come across as hostile towards you because you're not mine, you're his. I never wanna come as condemning or shaming you or judging you or wagging my finger. If I ever say you, please know I'm assuming myself in that category, I'm preaching to myself. But something in my guts says that there is a significant change coming like we've never experienced. And if you are caught in the street right now and in isolation and not in community, the best that I can give you right here, right now, I wish I had more time. I wish I could give you more of a mother's love where we can just talk about it for 18 years and eventually you catch the lesson. I feel more like a brother going, hey, I gotta give you some hard truths. If you are not in community, I wanna do a little self-assessment and if you go, hey, that's not who I am, I don't have John in my life, then there might be these moments where it feels like I'm yanking you by the arm. Let's talk about it on the safety of the sidewalk. But please know my heart out of the gate. I, I never wanna come across as hostile towards you. So, it's not gonna be that bad, but I just <laughs> know what keeps me up at night. This is gonna keep me up at night. Um, pressure and isolation is what I believe will lead to the death of despair. I've, I've said that. So the question is, is how do we build community? The first thing that I wanna talk about, or the few things that I wanna talk about is under this category, we have to change the way that we think. We need to make sure that we're thinking rightly about how we approach building community. There is this kind of, in a sense, call to repentance. It's not confessing you know, your sins or that you're doing something wrong as much as it's going, if you are thinking wrongly about this, you need to reject some lies about what it means to have community and you need to embrace some truths. And so there's this shifting that has to come for some of us. And if you're here today and you do not have community like I'm describing, I'm telling you, I think you the second thing after that, and we'll close with a self-assessment of, of me describing, this is what rich community looks like. Do you have it, yes or no? All right, so let's talk about how we think about community. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. How do we think about it? Two truths and a lie. Love the game. It's fun. Uh, I'm going to start off with, with a lie. I've got a lie about how people think about community that we need to reject, and then I have two truths that you have to embrace and own for yourself if you're ever going to have a shot at having rich covenant community. Uh, the lie is this, that coming to Northlands or joining a journey group is a strategy for you to find community. Take a minute, because you're gonna be like, wait a minute. This is such a common reality. People think that I'm going to find my community if I just keep attending enough services like this. You've been here six months, year and a half, two years. I go, I'm just gonna keep showing up, and eventually my Jonathan's just gonna pop out of one of these rows. I just know it. Or I signed up for a journey group. I went, uh, I didn't really see people that really fit me. Kind of sat there, I ate the chips in the corner, but nobody really approached me about, I didn't find my Jonathan. I don't think these journey groups are working. Uh, Acts chapter two, verse 42 to 47. If you'll read this with me, it says this. This is right after uh, the early church just blows up, the spirit of God begins to move, power is poured out and 3,000 are added in a single day to the beginnings of this church. It says this, and they devoted themselves and they devoted themselves, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That word devotion, it means enthusiastically showing loyalty and love to a person or an activity enthusiastically committing yourself to a person or an activity. So many people listen to that, what I just read, and in their minds they go, I've been coming here for so many years and not one person's invited me to go to dinner. Not one person has invited me to coffee. 
Not one person has invited me to go to breakfast and to be my mentor and to pour into my life. I have needs. I've been here long enough. People should know my needs and not one person has met my needs. I've witnessed other people getting their needs met. I've witnessed other people having community. That church is full of cliques over there. Some group, there's a group of people that are super happy, but it's not me. That is a victim mindset. First yank out of traffic, I apologize. It is a victim mindset to assume I've been here and people haven't been pouring into me. Instead of reading that passage with the very first line, and they devoted themselves. My question to you is how many times have you opened up your house and invited people in and made somebody else an entire dinner on you? How many people have you invited to coffee and offered to mentor and pour into? How many journey groups have you opened up and led yourself? I don't mean that to be harsh. I mean that to say many people, I, I, this is what I've learned about pain, because I've been, we had a season that was hard for us. What I've learned about pain is that pain tunnels your vision so that all you can see is your pain and you begin to ignore the other realities of life. In other words, the reality is like, you don't see other people's pains. You don't see other people's needs. You just see that your needs aren't being met. The spirit of God's poured out on the church and devotion pours out, not just on a few people caring for the many needs of it. Everybody began to pour out a devotion. Where is your devotion? I had somebody who literally had four or five guys pouring into him at one time. And when he said, nobody here has loved me through, I've been going through a really hard time and nobody's loved me well. And I literally said, well, what about so-and-so when they did this? And what about so-and-so when they did that? And, when, and essentially, he's like, that's not enough. And then I just asked him a simple question. I picked one of the guys out of the group that we've been running with, and I said, that guy there, what's the worst thing that he went through this year? And he could not answer me. Some people go their entire life going, I demand devotion and I need people's devotion. And they themselves have never once lived out that devotion, not one time. That's a yank out of traffic, I apologize. I don't mean that to be harsh. I simply mean it. Some people believe the reason I don't have community is because these people aren't loving me well. And I'm asking, are you loving people well? Where is your devotion? So here's why that's a lie. It's not that journey groups in the community at Northlands is not a place where community is happening. It's that journey groups and coming here is to provoke and to provide building materials. Because here's the first truth I wanna introduce. You do not find great community, you build great community. Come on, Shaq. You don't find it, you build it. This is a truth about life. You reap what you sow. You, anything worth having in this life requires effort. James chapter two, verse 17. Faith without works is dead. Anything worthwhile and worth having will require your blood, sweat, and tears. That's a fact. You don't find a great marriage. You commit to building a life with somebody and you work that out decade after decade after decade. You don't find great kids. You disciple and you build them and it's long and tedious and hard work and you're constantly going back and bringing it forward and again and again and again. You don't just wake up and have a healthy body. It requires you to give nutrition to it, to work it out. Nothing is a give me in this life. I didn't design the world, he did. Great community is not found. It is intentionally built, not by one party building into it, but two parties coming together and let's build a life together. Assuming you'll find community is like if you bought a gym membership and hired a trainer and you kept doing tours around the gym and you're shocked anytime he says you should probably get on the treadmill now. (laughs) Or you're gonna have to lift weights. That was, that was maybe a yank. I wasn't trying to direct it. It was just a, nobody can walk the miles for you. Nobody can stop you from eating something or force you to eat Brussels sprouts. God, help me. Ugh. <laughs> Asparagus. That's the only thing I can choke down with like a steak wrapped around it. And cheese. <laughs> and I tell myself that's protein. You... It requires your active work, blood, sweat, tears, if you're ever going to see traction. And can I just say, it's gonna take probably year upon year, decade upon decade. Nicole and I have been married 11 years and we're just feeling like we're dialing in our community. 
11 years. The next 11 is going to be insane. It's going to be awesome. Truth number two. It's not about doing something. It's about being someone. It's not about doing something or being someone. And I laugh because we know this deep down. In other words, people go, I tried to have community and I did something nice and it wasn't received. Clearly building community doesn't work. Like a, great, like a single grand gesture is going to produce Jonathan's all over in your life. This is, the reason I laugh is because this is the equivalent of the first date versus the 15th date. You know what I'm talking about? First date, the person that is sitting across from you is a complete and utter lie. Straight up, not real, doesn't exist. Wearing the best suit that he has, wearing the best shirts, they're plucking and tweezing and shaving and putting deodorant on and doing all this stuff. And they're going to the fanciest French restaurant that that guy cannot afford whatsoever. And he's acting like, this is what, just what I do every Friday. I just go to this French restaurant and hang out. I promise you by date 15, take out sweatpants, maybe watching a show or something. I don't know, The Office. That's real. That's real. And so many people go, I tried being nice once. See, it's not about doing something, it's about being someone. Doing something is like an action that you might do once or twice. Being someone is a commitment to habitual living and people point it out as a marker of your life. God is love, not because he loved one person one time once in history that time, but because every single time he comes across somebody, he loves them desperately, loves them desperately. You have to have these as a marker, as a quality of life. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to speed through five qualities. Five qualities. Let's go. Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Back in a brand new adventure. Be the friend you want your community filled with, is the point. Ask the question, not, are these people devoted to me? Have I been devotional enough for them? John, everybody wants a David. Nobody wants to be a Jonathan. Stripping yourself of your fame, your fortune, your success, and giving it away to somebody else so that they might increase and you can decrease. I just want to, this is the last part, self-assessment. Not a condemnation, but to really ask, am I this person? The people that are closest to me, would they say that's who you are absolutely all day? Number one, self-assessment. If you want covenant community, you must be meek. I like that word meek because it literally means to be imposed on. Harvey Campbell, he's a friend of the house. He said it this way, when you become a friend, what you are actually signing up for is to be inconvenienced on a continual basis. Being a friend to somebody is just multiple inconveniences. Selah. I, I wanna shout some people out because I've seen this again and again. Brady and Laura Powell for me, they're a part of our community here and they're a part of mine and Nicole's community. That guy will put himself out and give you the shirt on his back and then he'll wash your clothes to make sure that you have more shirts to wear. He inconveniences himself again and again and again. Puts out, a, somebody's like, hey, I gotta move. I got a truck for you. I gotta move. I'll help you. I'll be there in five minutes. Just again and again and again and again. So when I get a call from Brady, hey, I have a washer and dryer. It's the last thing that I need out of our, our house and it's pouring down rain. I can tell you this with complete confidence. If you called me with that request, I would say I'm busy. <laughs> I love so many of you. Washers are the worst thing to move. They've got, they're heavy, they cut into your fingers and it's pouring down rain, are you kidding me? But for Brady, it was no inconvenience. Why? Because he continually allows other people to be imposed on him and he did that for my life. And so to, to show that back to him was easy, not an inconvenience at all. We laughed our way through it. Good. Number two, you need to be meek and you need to be a celebrator. You have to learn how to celebrate people as if it is your own achievement. Callie and David Murray have become this for Nicole and I. They celebrate like crazy. And I'm not just talking about, hey, a text, congratulations on the new baby. Callie goes, hey, I'm organizing all the friends. We're getting a food train. You, here's the time slots. You say what your preferences are. You do this. We answered three questions and we just had meals showing up for us when the baby came. And some of you are going, nobody makes me a meal train. When have you signed up to be a part of a meal train? If you want that, sign up. I'm not saying I signed up for a meal train because I can't cook, but Nicole... She does stuff. 
we had this baby, we had the, the baby four weeks old. We're not sure if we're even gonna get to go to the Grammys because we're traveling with a four week old and that felt daunting. Callie goes, hey, we think you guys should go for it and we'll celebrate you. But if you choose that it's better for you to stay home, we're throwing you a crazy Grammy party at our house and we'll do it live stream. That's who Callie and David, constantly looking for opportunities to celebrate. Brady and Laura Powell, they adopted and it was many, many cases of rejections and back and forth and all that kind of stuff. And finally they said, hey, we found our son Grover. All the guys in Norcross rallied around and we grabbed champagne bottles because we wanted to do that thing in NASCAR where we give the baby a shower. <laughs> you haven't lived until you've seen a, a drunk three-week-old. It's amazing. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kidding. We didn't shower the baby, we showered Brady. The point was, was that we rallied because it was our adoption. It wasn't just their adoption, it was our adoption. Norcross won. You need celebrators in your life. Number three, you have to be selfless. And this is the hardest one by far because this is the one that is gonna require you to be put in pain for the sake of your brother. Yeah. Wow. Uh, when Nicole and I were trying to get pregnant the first time around, it took us about a year and a few months and we were beginning to feel like there was trouble. And so right about a year, they say, maybe you should go to a doctor and get checked out. Before we did that, we called our friends Russell and Anne-Marie Poland and we said, hey, would you guys do dinner with us and just pray with us? And many of you might know their story because been, we've been celebrating testimonies of their life, but for, de for a decade, they went through infertility. And in this part of the journey, they were about five years into their journey. That's why we called them and said, hey, you guys have been, a, you've been ahead of this. You can lead us through it. Would you pray for us? And so they prayed for us at that dinner. Tears were shed. It was a hard dinner. And the next month, the next cycle, Nicole and I get pregnant. Wow. We have to then tell Russell and Anne-Marie Poland that their prayers worked for us. And it hadn't worked for them. And so I sit across from Russell and Anne Marie, and we say, hey guys, you're our closest friends, so you're one of the first that would know this news. We just want you to know we're pregnant, and thank you for the prayers. And I wasn't sure what to expect at that moment in time, because it felt hard saying it. And Russell, without flinching, smiles big, hugs me, and says, I'm so excited for you, brother. And I, I know the gut punch that that was for him. And he took it on the chin to celebrate me in a season that was incredibly difficult and hard. That's selflessness. And so many people want to have friendship, but when life gets hard, they shrink away because isolation is, isolation is far more comfortable because it doesn't require you to put yourself out there and feel pain. But if you're going to have rich community, it will require you to put it on, you take it on the chin for the sake of your brother and live with this philosophy, whatever hurts my brother hurts me. It was at that time Russell and I had knit souls together. Probably earlier, but that was something big. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, you have to be generous. Devotion and enthusiasm in your generosity. Some people ask this question in the church. Uh, do you guys believe in tithing? Some people are asking out of sheer curiosity, new covenant is tithing for today. And many people are asking because they're going, because I'd rather keep my money in my wallet. Do I have to give? If you wait for a biblical mandate to be generous, those are the kind of people that you're gonna be surrounded with. Wow. Looking for a good reason to give anything to you generously. Do I, do I have to give to so-and-so? I don't need a great reason to give generously to my friends because I have great friends, so I look for any reason to be wow. generous. It's Groundhog's Day. Thought I should bake you a lasagna. <laughs> Look for opportunities to pour yourself out generously. It was Stephen Murray, is a friend of mine, generous couple, Stephen and Brittany. I have so many friends here who are generous. The DeBellatos, crazy generous people. I can point people out left and right. Stephen said this once. He said, when a, a true sign of friendship is when two parties are asked, who benefits most from this relationship? Both parties say emphatically, I do. Can you say that about your friends? Last thing and we'll, and we'll close out. Number five, if you want covenant community, you must be a unifier. It is too difficult in the state of our nation and in the world that we live in to divide over anything. Unity is not the same as uniformity and so many people's unity only rests as far as their uniformity will take them. 
What I mean by that is as long as we have everything in common and as long as you don't rock my boat and you fit in this little box that I call my friendship with you, as long as you don't step out of those lines, you and I can have unity. That's not unity, it's weak. The pandemic was this space for me where I witnessed people leave the church for a variety of reasons that just were not biblical. I'm going there for just a moment. People left the church because we said, hey, we're gonna close the doors just for a moment. We have live stream, we're more than set up for that. People, people said, oh, you guys just don't have any faith. We're not coming back. And they haven't. And then we opened the doors of the church and people said, I can't believe you're being so reckless and careless. We're leaving the church. How dare you? It's almost like you can't win no matter what you do. And then people, and then when we came back into the church, we said, hey, we're gonna spread out. We're all gonna wear masks. They're required if we're gonna be in this big public place. If you're not comfortable wearing masks, we have an overflow room. You can also watch the stream from home. You don't have to do this, but if you're gonna be in this space, you gotta wear a mask. And people go, how dare you muzzle the church? (laughs) And so those people left. And then we said, you know what? Masks are optional. And people, you reckless. How dare you treat people like this? I learned quickly that for many people that were in our community that are no longer here, I commend you because you're still here, so I'm not talking about you. I'm not yanking your arm. Unity was only as far as thin as the mask that they were actually wearing. The moment that that broke, they go, I'm out. And I'm telling you this with urgency because you need to hear it plainly. I don't think people who leave that quickly for anything. They're gonna hop from church to church to church, from place to place to place, never laying down roots. So therefore, how can you ever have rich, strong covenant community if you're constantly moving and changing the faces of people that you're with? It wouldn't work in marriage. Why are you treating the church any different? I gotta close. My question simply is this. Do you have this? If you take an assessment of your life, Can you say, my friends would say, I am meek. I am okay with being inconvenienced. I celebrate them as often as possible. I'm generous with them. I am selfless towards them. I am constantly unifying our group. If you can't say that about yourself, then I'm saying now's the time to change because what is coming is gonna require us to be that. Uh, you can put up that last, that last slide of the picture. This is what I found to be true. Greg showed me this early on in my discipleship walking with him. When it comes to commitment and intimacy, intimacy is what's gonna be needed for what the seasons to come. And what I'm describing to you is deep covenantal community and intimacy. If you want deep intimacy with another human being, it will require you to have deep commitment to them. And commitment, it will cost you yeah. deeply. Yeah. It will require you to be continually inconvenienced continually decreasing yourself for the sake of another, continually stepping into pain when it would be easier to shrink back, continually pouring out your time, energy, resources, finances, continually making yourself uncomfortable because we are called to be together, but it doesn't mean we're always going to agree. That costs deeply. Everybody desires deep intimacy. The reason we don't have it is because very few people look at that price tag and say, I'll pay it. I'm asking you, join a group, come to Northlands, find community with people. You're going to need intimacy with the Spirit of God and you're going to need intimacy with his bride in this community because if you do not have this and you choose isolation, I believe the new level of pressure that is coming is going to cause death by despair. Don't let it happen to you. I'm gonna invite Russell to come up.